Yetta, page 32. Why isn't it time yet, Yetta demanded. Why not now? Oh, Yetta, because, Rahel snapped back, shoving open the door of their apartment and reaching up to turn on the gas lights. What are you waiting for, Yetta asked. The Messiah? Yetta, Rahel cried, horrified. If Papa heard you talking like that... Papa's thousands of miles away, Yetta retorted. But she felt shame coursing through her. She and Rahal had just worked a full day on the Sabbath. They'd long since given up any concerns about keeping kosher or lighting Sabbath candles. If asked, Yetta would have said she was a socialist rather than a Jew. But joking about the Messiah was going too far. I thought you were a revolutionary, she complained to Rahal to cover her shame. I was a revolutionary in Russia, Russia, Rahel said, and you see where it got me. She bent down and lit the stove. America. Because you ran away, Yetta said, reaching into the cupboard for potatoes and carrots they'd bought the night before. Because, Rahel said, beginning to chop the potatoes while Yetta chopped carrots, I could see when a fight was hopeless and I chose to escape with my life. This was an argument they'd been having ever since Yetta joined her older sister in America. Yetta had been ten when Rahel left their shuttle and went to work in the big city, Ballyastock. She'd been eleven when Rahel come back, pounding on the door in the middle of the night, full of stories about plots against, against the Tsar and false accusations and the city in flames. Papa had scraped together every ruble he could to send Rahel to safety. So Yetta had had three years, ages 12, 13, and 14, to spend admiring her brave, glorious, absent sister. When Yetta herself arrived in New York two months ago, it had been a jolt to discover that Rahel didn't walk around in a blaze of glory. In fact, Rahel looked like a completely ordinary 19-year-old girl. Dark hair piled on top of her head, squashed hat that was a poor knockoff of Fifth Avenue fashion, threadbare shirtwaist, and skirt that had definitely seen better days. And yet, Yetta couldn't scoff too much at Rahel. Without Rahel, Yetta would still be sitting back in the shuttle, milking cows and daydreaming about revolution. You think all fights are hopeless, Yetta mur murmured, and maybe they were in Russia. This was a major concession. But here, now, there must have been 400 workers who walked out today, all yelling for a strike. Even that new Italian girl who sat there looking terrified all day, even she stood up and walked out. It had been one of the most exciting moments of Yetta's life. She'd been living for years on the stories of Rahel's days as a revolutionary most of them pieced together from overhearing Mama and Papa's worried whispers. Now, finally, at the end of another long, boring day of cutting threads, she'd had her own glorious moment of rebellion. It had been even more incredible than she'd imagined. The surge of solidarity she felt with her fellow workers, the dizzying relief of finally saying out loud in a way the bosses couldn't ignore, "'This isn't fair!' You can't cheat us and lie to us and overwork us any more. Rail snorted. Maybe 400 workers walked out, she said, 
setting a pot of water to boil on the stove, but how many actually went to the union headquarters to plan for a strike? Yet it didn't answer that, because it had been just her and Rahel and three or four others. They'd stood outside the locked door, their excitement plummeting into something more like embarrassment, until Rahel finally said they should just give up and go home. Maybe everyone else gathered somewhere else, Yetta said. Rahel took the knife from Yetta's hand and laid it down on the table. She slid the carrots and potatoes into the water. There isn't anywhere else to gather, Rahel said. Yetta, you have to face facts. Nobody's ready for a strike. The union barely has any members. We have four dollars in the treasury. Even if we managed to organize, we couldn't sustain a strike. Everyone would starve. And Mr. Harris and Mr. Blanc know that. Mr. Harris and Mr. Blanc were the owners of the Triangle Factory, the shirtwaist kings, they liked to be called. They had offices on the tenth floor, and Yetta had heard the other girls whispering about seeing the men arriving or departing in their limousines. Yetta had never caught so much as a glimpse of either man. But it wasn't just girls who walked out calling for a strike, Yetta protested. It was a contractor who started the whole thing. It was a man. Even Yetta had to admit, 400 girls would have little more power than 400 fleas. But men were more important. The contractors were practically on the same level as Mr. Harris and Mr. Blanc. Mr. Klein was incredibly brave, Rahel agreed. Yetta let herself relive the drama she'd witnessed earlier that day. She'd just been sitting there, her hands racing through the shirtwaists, her mind counting down the minutes to the end of the day. She'd seen the contractors getting their pay envelopes and had begun calculating. If Mr. Carlotti gave her a full four dollars, like he was supposed to, how much would be left over after Rahel took out the money for rent and for food and for sending back to Papa in Russia? It was amazing that she'd been able to hear Mr. Klein over the clatter of the sewing machines, but he'd been awfully loud. I'm sick of this slave driving, he'd screamed, throwing his pay envelope down on the table. If I pay my girls enough to live on, there's no money left over for me. I shouldn't have to choose between starving my workers and starving my family. Mr. Bernstein, the factory manager, had answered in a low, hissing voice. Yetta knew what he said, only because she'd asked the girls sitting nearby. If you don't like the way we do business here, get out. He pointed to the shirtwaist, still crammed beneath the needle of Mr. Klein's sewing machine. Finish up that waist and get out. And then Mr. Bernstein had turned on his heel and walked away. It was that motion that brought the anger surging up inside Yetta. Mr. Bernstein didn't care if everyone starved. He cared only about finishing shirtwaists. Girls were gasping all around Mr. Klein, but he made no move to sit back down at the sewing machine. He made no move to leave. Another contractor, Mr. Elfusen, jumped up and stood beside him. He's right, Mr. Elfusen exploded. You're starving us all. Blanc and Harris are making millions, but they're bleeding us to death. Mr. Bernstein narrowed his eyes and glared. Then he left. For a moment, there was a feeling in the room as if anything could happen. Yetta heard one girl whisper, Is he going to get more money? 
Mr. Bernstein reappeared only seconds later from the stairway. But he wasn't carrying cash. He wasn't alone, either. He was accompanied by two workers from another floor. Cutters, by the look of them. They each had more muscles than the strong man Yetta had seen at Coney Island. I said, get out, Mr. Bernstein yelled. One cutter shoved Mr. Elfusen out the door. The other grabbed Mr. Klein. Mr. Bernstein slapped Mr. Klein's face, knocking his glasses to the floor. He and the cutter jerked on Mr. Klein's arms, dragging him away. Still, Mr. Klein kept fighting and yelling. Will you sit at your machines and watch a fellow worker treated this way? Mr. Klein screamed out to everyone else. Yetta was up on her feet before she had a chance to notice that others were standing too. The shirtwaist in her lap tumbled to the floor. She cheered, not me, and then that became, not us. The word strike seemed to come out of nowhere, a wave of whispers and shouts flowing through the crowd, a wave carrying everyone out the door. Eat, Rahel said, sliding a plate of potatoes and carrots in front of Yetta bringing her back to their sad, dark apartment, and to the sad, dark fact that there wasn't going to be a strike. Monday morning, everyone would creep back to work just like always. Which is worse, Yetta wondered, to be a girl in a shuttle in Russia, milking cows and daydreaming about revolution, or to be a girl in a factory in America, sewing shirtwaists and daydreaming about a strike that's never going to happen. It sounded a little like the questions Papa quoted from the Talmud. Isn't there anything we can do, Yetta moaned? Anything to make the time for a strike come faster? Rahel surprised her by nodding. Yes, she said. There is. We're going to get ready. So next time something like this flares up? Next time we'll stay strong, Yetta said. Next time no one will give up. Exactly, Rahel said. She was already reaching for pen and paper, already making plans. Yetta loved having a sister who was a revolutionary.